I know I've said I'm excited about a lot of things today, and that's true, but the thing I'm most excited about is that one of my best friends, our elder, Landon Pontius, is going to bring the good word this morning. So everyone give him a round of applause. Um, so Lander, uh, Landon signed on to be... Common mistake. I know him well, obviously. Um, Landon signed on to be one of our elders at the beginning of the year, um, and it's just been so amazing to see um, not only the, the specific voice and the specific angle that he's brought into our community and helping lead us and craft who we are, um, but just being able to witness his journey over the past several years as um, Landon has really dug into what, what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does it mean to be faithful to him, and, and, and I think so much of not only his uh, process, but his heart is invested in the word that he's going to bring for us this morning. So if you just um, bow your heads with me, we're going to pray a blessing over him as he brings the word. Um, Lord, I thank you so much for this amazing man of God. I thank you for everything that you've invested in him from, uh, from, from day one. That, Lord, he doesn't come to us today just with some advice or just with some Bible verses, but he brings his entire story uh, and offers it up to us as an example of what happens when we seek out being faithful to you of pursuing the real and living God in this moment. And so, Father, I pray that you would anoint um, his mouth to speak your words. You would anoint his heart to not only receive your truth, but to offer it to us. Uh, and that we would all be open to hear what you have to say through him uh, in this moment. As so we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hello. How are you guys? Great. Um, so today we're going to talk about belief and uncertainty, um, and we're going to ask the question, how are we called to present our belief to the world? So what role does belief play for us as Christians internally and for us as Christians kind of externally outside of the church? Um, I'm going to walk us through some different phases of what I call the life cycle of belief, um, which is kind of just these different seasons and processes we go through as we kind of form and shape the way that we see the world, the way we define kind of what we experience. Um, those different phases are experience. So it starts with us encountering God, um, having some type of experience with the divine, and then moves into definition, which is us trying our best to apply words to that experience. Try to explain it, describe it, kind of uh, make some type of worldview that incorporates that thing. Then we move into testing. Inevitably, those beliefs are tested, they're challenged, whether that's just by life and things that, things that happen or by our own intentional kind of exploration. And that's a lot of what we're gonna talk about today is how do we, um, how do we learn to incorporate growth and evolution in our belief and faith in a healthy relationship with God and not view uncertainty and doubt and questions and change as threats and enemies to the foundation of what we have with God, but allowing that to actually be a valuable part of a real healthy relationship. Um, so from the testing and exploration phase, hopefully we move into growth and evolution. Which I know it's like a buzzword, but Good kind. We won't be controversial too much today. Um, so how do we take that testing, how do we take the challenge to those beliefs 
and use those to kind of generate growth in our own lives and in the way that we interact with the world. Um, and we're also gonna, so we're gonna ask ourselves, how do we incorporate uncertainty into a healthy faith? So how is it, how do we shift the way that we see that um, so it's not this threat to the whole thing that we try to not talk about our questions, we try to just focus on being as certain as possible to consider ourselves successful in the church, successful in the kingdom, and how do we kind of reframe the way that we see that? So I'll start with kind of using that outline to take you through a little of my own story. I grew up in a small town in East Texas, kind of the middle of nowhere, um, and I grew up in an organization called Youth with a Mission, um, which is a, an international youth missions ag agency. Um, my parents were on staff for 25 years, and I grew up very much in that kind of evangelical missionary world. Um, I will inevitably refer to that as YWAM, which is just the reading of the acronym. So if you hear me say YWAM, that's what I'm talking about. I realize that gets a little confusing. Um, so in YWAM, I was born into a very, very healthy family. Um, my parents are as good as they get. I mean, I think the older I get, the more people I meet, the more I realize how blessed I was as a kid. I don't have any of those, like, daddy issues or whatever. Like, really healthy family, really strong, healthy community. Grew up in a very safe, caring environment. It was, like, pretty ripple-free um, for most of my childhood, which is great. Um, what comes along with that experience, I had a lot of really great, real experiences with God in that. You know, I think I've really, throughout my life, very clearly seen the faithfulness of God, maybe more than most even, um, just because I was kind of born into this sort of strange utopia bubble, it seems like. Um, and so with the um, kind of exposure that I had in YWAM comes um, the, the definition of those experiences. So this YWAM campus in particular um, is your kind of traditional conservative evangelical um, theology. They're usually relatively simple answers to the problems of life. Um, if you look to the Bible, you always know exactly what you're supposed to do. Um, and that was fine for a long time and that, that worldview really worked as long as I was in that environment, as long as I was in that group. And so I moved from definition and left home, went to college, met a bunch of liberals, and <laughs> I was really exposed to a different way of thinking. You know, even for me growing up in East Texas and in YWAM, meeting like liber liberal and Christian sounded like they were like, yeah, <laughs> they were like contradicting each other, you know, they're like you can't be both because everything that liberals stand for is like everything that God hates, you know. Um, and so even just moving to Orlando, just that was like meeting politically liberal Christians was a like really weird thing at first. Um, or just being exposed to different denominations, different ways of doing things, um, even in the church. And what I found was those definitions that I've been given as a child 
didn't apply really cleanly to the new place that I found myself in. And it wasn't that they were all wrong or bad or that they all needed to change because now I had different experiences, but it really kind of pushed me into this testing period of like, okay, I don't know how to apply these answers anymore. I had, all, had my big uh, kind of cache of the Bible verses and the easy answers to explain suffering in the world and to explain all these things and found that those didn't fit cleanly anymore. And we talk a lot about Enneagram here, or at least have been recently. Those of you who are not familiar, the Enneagram is similar to Myers-Briggs or it's a personality typing system. Um, and I am an Enneagram 5, so the different personality types are labeled by number. And five is called the investigator or the observer. Fives really love collecting knowledge and information, being analytical and objective. And so for me, this like crisis of understanding was my least favorite <laughs> of all the things. Um, because I, I put so much importance on my ability to understand things around me and to explain them. And I was lucky that what I had, though, was a foundation of trust. So what was, I didn't have a crisis of relationship with God. I had a crisis of understanding. And part of what I want to talk about today is how do we keep those things separate so that when one of our beliefs is challenged, the whole thing doesn't have to be on the table, on the chopping block, you know? I think we see so often people that leave um, these strict conservative theological churches, usually if they have a crisis of faith, they become an atheist. It's so rare that they actually like evolve. I'm sure you have people kind of cross-pollinating to different churches, but you know the Southern Baptist um, denomination is a great example. They have the lowest number of defections, if you will. But of those people that leave the church, they produce the most atheists. And so it's like, because the way it's set up is nothing is debatable. These rules are absolute. And if any of them were ever to be proven wrong, the whole thing is a sham. And so when people come up against these complicated situations in life, then the whole thing, it's the house of cards, you know, it's like six-day creation becomes this big controversial issue when in reality, nobody cares, really. I mean, like, how important is that? You know, you'll see two people, two Christians, that both believe in God, have a great relationship with God, and they're not debating whether or not God created the world. But they're having this violent debate about how it happened. And churches split over things like that because we, we think that the understanding is paramount, that that's the most important thing for us. And so for me, kind of moving through that time of asking these difficult questions, there's a lot of confusion in that where I kind of systematically, as fives do, went through all of these different beliefs and these different kind of mantras, if you will, the Sunday school theology um, I had inherited and really started to test 
kind of each of those things and ask those difficult questions of, okay, what of this is part of the, the foundation? What of this is real and what of this is potentially in the way or potentially at least debatable? Um, so I want to break down those, those different sections, experience, definition, testing and exploration, and growth, and um, see kind of what we can learn as a group, as a corporate body, kind of from those lessons that I feel like I've very sloppily stumbled my way through for the last few years. Um, so we start with experience. Experience is, for our purposes today, kind of the, most straight, the more straightforward. You know, you experience God. You know, for a lot of us that grew up in the church, it's at a summer camp or during some type of ministry time. You, you know, stirred up the courage to come forward, had this great experience. You experience breakthrough or healing. You know, it could be on a street corner. It could be wherever. It doesn't have to be kind of in that church context. But we experience that somehow. We get this glimpse of this bigger thing, this greater force. You know, we, we touch God in a sense. And so usually um, definition is very closely connected to how we experience things. So one little caveat is as we kind of go through these phases, I'm not trying to box it in that you go through these one, two, three, four, but a lot of these overlap. A lot of the, the definitions that you get change how you experience things and vice versa. So as we're reading through these, don't feel like, oh, well, that wasn't my experience. I didn't do it in that order. Totally fine. So we have this experience, and then we're handed this framework for what we've experienced. Either before it happens, so if you were in like a, if your first experience with God was at some type of summer camp, there was probably a message much like this that led up, that explained much of what was going to happen, why it was going to happen, what was going to happen inside of you, what your response should be. And these things are good. It's important to give people direction and clarity. So what I'm not saying is that that is a bad thing. Um, but we're handed language for this unlimited, eternal thing that we've just come in contact with. And what's important for us to understand is that when we try to take this huge, never-ending, all-powerful person that we've met, and we funnel it into language, inevitably it's incomplete. Inevitably it's a reduction of the thing itself. They've done some really interesting studies um, with MRI scanners, and of course I'm going to quote science because I'm a five, don't forget, um, where they take someone who's a really passionate believer in Jesus and they put them in a brain scanner and they ask them to think about God to dwell on God. There's a part of your brain that lights up when you do that. It's the same part of your brain that lights up when you're in love with someone or you experience euphoria. It's kind of this part of the brain um, that's separate from the language center of your brain. So an interesting thing they saw was that your left frontal lobe where you process most of your language was kind of unexpectedly very quiet. And what we kind of see from that is that when we're dwelling on God, it's even in the brain is disconnected from language. And then when that person would be asked to describe God, the language center of the brain would light up and the 
uh, section of the brain where we experience love would go dark. And even so in neuroscience, our understanding of God more closely resembles an experience or a feeling than a linguistic understanding. So that thing is not inherently made for language. And you see it, you know, if you ask someone that's in love, why do you love that person? The first thing they usually say is, uh... <laughs> it's not because they're unsure of... <laughs> and then the other person's like, what do you mean, uh? <laughs> and it's not that they're unsure about the way they feel or why they feel that, but there's this, this inherent understanding that that thing is really difficult to cram down into a sentence, you know? You're trying in your mind, the uh portion is, okay, I have this big unexplainable thing that I know surpasses language, and as I try to push it down into how to word it, I see all these bits of it falling off. And I know like, so it's kind of like because of this, and the whole, your whole explanation about why you love this person, which is this really exciting thing, kind of comes with this face. Because it's like, but sort of like, but not really, you know, it's like kind of like that, but more than that, you know? And so we're like having a really difficult time sharing that thing. And it's important to, to work at that though. It's important to figure out how to express those things. It's important to work to um, define that thing to be able to point at it and to grow an understanding of that. So as we're going through all of this, we're not talking about understanding as being a bad thing. We're talking about where does it belong in the priority of the other parts of our faith and relationships. So um, one thing that we see that happens is, he's gonna tape my microphone so I stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and right here. Oh, no, well, that's not going to work. All right, let's try that. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So if we look at church history, we see something really interesting. In the 18th century, we went through what's called the Enlightenment, which was kind of this explosion in philosophical and intellectual understanding. Um, it's where we developed scientific method, which we would all agree was a really great thing for civilization. Um, but what also happened is we applied that method to our faith and to our religion. Um, logic and reason become the only criteria for moral decisions and ethics. And we changed so much of what before was language about covenant and commitment, and we used all of this legal terminology, where everything became about the terms of our religion, the terms of our faith. What are the rules? What do I have to do to get in to heaven? What, do I, what, what disqualifies me? Everything becomes these boxes that we're all trying to check. And in the process, we lost the value of beauty, and of mystery. You know, if something is mysterious, it's lazy. And beauty isn't useful to us anymore. 
And I think it's interesting when we see these ancient churches, they're all just like so ornate and amazing. And you know, these, these old uh, composers of these beautiful orchestras were like these wonderful like Christian people who understood that beauty by its own merits point to God. You know, if we believe God is the source of beauty, then you know, it would serve to assume that beauty in itself then is somewhat like a signature of God. And we've, we've scrapped that in a lot of um, areas of our faith and just said, no, the content is the only thing that matters. The paramount thing is the explanation. If you can't give me the clear theology, if your art doesn't clearly say Jesus is Lord in English on the painting, it's not valuable to the kingdom. And I think a lot of us would agree that that's a real shame. And I think, you know, our church, we're very, you know, as Ryan was saying, like we're very intentional about giving beauty purpose and allowing there to be mystery. You know, mystery doesn't have to be laziness. Saying something is mysterious doesn't mean you're not trying hard enough. It's a recognition that it's bigger than we're easily able to define. You know, that's why, like, poetry and art are these kind of, like, vague explanations. You know, like, when you read a piece of poetry or you hear a beautiful song, even the lyrics, so even if we focus on the content, it's usually not just literally saying exactly what they're trying to communicate. Because when we point at the divine, when we allow there to be space for interpretation, we allow people to have a truer interaction with the bigness of that thing because we don't try to closely define it into our little box. So what also happened was we started to read that worldview into the Bible. And we see words like belief and faith and we attribute this implication that it's about correct thinking. That when we read about people's great belief, it was that they understood how everything worked. And you know, even in the story of Abraham, in the early parts of the Bible, is the first time we see the word believe. And the word that's translated into believe there is aman, and that's made its way into English as amen, which is not just the cue that the prayer is over and we're all allowed to start eating, but it's actually about trust. So when we say amen at the end of a prayer, it's us saying, we've said our peace and we trust you. It's a declaration of trust. It's not about just believing the right thing. What's valuable about Abraham and his belief was that it was trust. It wasn't that he had the right theology, it was that he was willing to go into places he couldn't define, to go where he, you know, is the, de the unknown destination. So our trust, is more about the willingness to step into what we don't know than it is about being able to define what we do know. And so we've done a similar thing with faith, and I think a lot of times when we read these verses, if we substitute the word trust for them, I think we would find um, a really valuable truth in a lot of that. Um, so in marriage, we see a similar thing. So I'm married to Allison, for those of you who don't know her. She's great. In our marriage, we have a lot of misunderstandings. We misunderstand the other person's expectation, 
or their desire or their preference. But those misunderstandings are not a threat to the core of the relationship. So like, even when we look at marriage vows, they're not statements of knowledge. Marriage vows are statements of commitment through any circumstance. You know, it's the richer, poorer, sickness and health, till death do us part. It's the no exceptions, the commitment. It's not the, hey, I'm always going to understand you. It's a commitment of covenant, not of contract. The contract part of marriage is super easy. Any two of you can walk into the courthouse, sign a piece of paper, and the document part is done. And that's a static agreement. The covenant part is the process part. It's the non-static version. It's the part where you make a promise of commitment, and that's the difficult bit. That's the part that needs to grow. And the understanding is important because it enriches that commitment. Me working hard to better understand Allison is important, but it's not more important than my commitment to her. Does that make sense? We're all tracking? Okay, so we move through this phase of definition where we've had this experience and we've worked to try to frame it, to try to explain it. And we move into a season or a phase of whether it's a particular belief or all of your belief, whatever, we experience some kind of testing. So whether that's, like in my case, more, of, more due to exploration and exposure or whether it's just tested by something you can't control. You know, someone passes away, some, a situation in your life happens, a relationship is ruined, you pray and healing doesn't come. You know, all of these difficult situations we find ourselves up against, how do we then exist in that complicated nature? How do we apply our faith to that circumstance? In this section, I want to specifically address to those of you who feel like you still have that voice deep down inside telling you that you should have figured this out by now. You know, that this Christianity thing really isn't that hard. You should be nailing it by now. <laughs> and I want to give you permission to be a work in progress. Because that's the point of so much of this, is the progress, is the process. And we sell ourselves short when we feel like we have to, everything is about certainty. You know, it's like those um, at the fair, you see that, that game where you s hit the sledgehammer on the like air pad and try to send the ball up to ring the bell. When we make our faith about certainty and about understanding, that's what we're doing. If I could just get enough certainty to ring the certainty bell, then things would happen. Then I would see healing. Then I would see breakthrough. And then we'd see revival. The problem is that I'm not certain enough. I'm not confident enough. Um, and it, it quickly becomes about our performance instead of being about trust. Misunderstanding should be and can be an opportunity to lean into trust, not a threat to trust itself. And I think that's something that we very often don't see and don't apply. We think, oh, there's this misunderstanding. I have a misunderstanding with Allison. And there's this like panic of like, oh no. Everything, you know, you feel like everything's all of a sudden like rocky, but in reality, it's an opportunity to strengthen the foundation. It's not a chipping away of the foundation. So I want to like keep reiterating the difference between those two things.
We have to learn to apply our faith to situations that don't have easy answers. Because we lose our ability to be a faithful presence if we don't do that. And we talk a lot about being a faithful presence. And what we see happen in the church, and something that I've seen happen in the lives of people that I know is, they're in this really tight group of people, they're in this healthy church body, this family, and then something tragic happens in their life. They go through a divorce, or someone close to them dies. And the people around them love them, but don't know how to address it. So they either just don't, and they don't say anything, they don't do anything, because they don't want it to be messy and awkward, and they just ignore it. And these people feel like they're going through things alone. Or, what's often worse is, they try to force one of the easy explanations, the easy definitions, into the situation. And you come in when this grief is fresh, and you say, well, everything happens for a reason, or God has a plan. And for some of us, it sounds like, why would you ever say that? But that happens so often, because we think the thing that we're offering the world, the way that we offer healing is through explanation. When we should see that the value of just being with people, letting them know that they're not alone and that you're there, is just as valuable as coming in and trying to explain why everything happens and what we're supposed to do about it. We feel like we have to explain truth rather than demonstrate it. And sound bites are much harder to apply to people with real names. All of those easy definitions exist really well in a vacuum. If you don't get messy, if you don't get involved in real people's lives, it's really easy to throw a couple Bible verses at homosexuality and just think, here's the deal, I'm just gonna have these couple verses, that gives me permission to draw the line in the sand and not get involved. But I would challenge you that, in my observation, most people that think difficult issues are easily addressed by half Bible verses or by our little explanations, probably don't know many people that are involved with that issue, whether it's name anything. We so often see people chucking their little debate point over the wall, thinking that they're somehow scoring points for their team when they're really just doing damage and kind of, those things, like relationship is the key in that. So it's our job to demonstrate truth more than it is to explain it. And again, it's not that the way we, it's not that the words for God aren't important. It's that they're not more important than us demonstrating what we think those words mean. Walking the path of faith means trusting God enough to let our uh-oh moments expose how we conform God to fit our way of thinking. So when we come against something that's a, that all of a sudden gives us that panic and we're, okay, I don't know how to easily apply this Bible verse to this issue, we have to let that be an opportunity to show us how we're boxing God in and an opportunity to press into trust when we don't understand something. And again, for me, as an Enneagram 5, that's my least favorite of all of the things. Learning how to allow nuance and complexity to exist inside of our faith. So even in the Bible, 
um, we see in Jewish culture that debate is a really important part of faith. Jewish people have books and books of just recorded debates. Not a narration of a debate, not a here's a debate, walk you through it, the last chapter of the book is here's why this person wins, X, Y, Z, this was a great lesson on why not to believe the losing side's position. The debate itself is valuable. A sign of the strength of your faith is your willingness to wrestle with your understanding towards the real thing and not just your certitude. Ryan and Cole have said many times, like, your faith is not your confidence. It's not your certitude. It's your trust. It's your willingness to wrestle through, to debate your understanding, to let that be a flexible, moving, growing thing, knowing that it's an opportunity to make what's really important, which is the trust and relationship element of that relationship stronger. You guys tracking? There's a, a French philosopher named Simone Weil, and she had a really great um, quote I want to read. It says, it seemed to me certain, and I still think so today, that one can never wrestle enough with God if one does so out of pure regard for the truth. And I think that really sums up this principle really well, that if our motivation in wrestling with our understanding and our belief is to get to God, is to get to the real thing, is to figure out what's the real essence of this thing that all of us are here to find, then it becomes a valuable thing. Then it becomes something that works for us. Okay, so we experience challenge, we experience um, some situation that allows, that kind of causes us to question the definition that we had attached to our experience. So how do we use that then to grow? How do we use that as a positive? Do we respond to the testing of our beliefs by doubling down and just joining the, the culture war for political influence? Is it all just about being more right than the other side? You know, we see it so often in, in politics very clearly, especially now, is each side has to be, everything's about certainty. You have to exaggerate the positives of your team and exaggerate the negatives of the other team because nuance and complexity are associated with weakness. If you have a guy stand up really confidently, tell you something with zero evidence, and then you have someone else come up and say their position, but they also, because they see things in a complex way, they also tell you that it's not 100%, you know, they give you some nuance. Even though they're giving you evidence, psychologically we're much more likely to want to trust the certain guy that gave us no reason to trust him. Certainty is wired into our brains. And certainty is a good thing, but not when we use it as an excuse to separate ourselves from other people. So in Proverbs, we see these really interesting comparisons. A proverb is essentially just a comparison of two things, two ways of doing something. And in Proverbs, we see several times this comparison between the prudent and the simple. And at first, it seems like this kind of strange, 
strange things to pit against each other. Um, in Proverbs 12, 16 it says, the simple show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. Or in 12, 23, the prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but the simple heart blurts out folly. And in 14, 15, the simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. And it seems like a kind of strange comparison until we look at the words that are um, translated into prudent and simple. And simple. The word for simple that's translated into simple there means naive or foolish or seducible. And the word for prudent means subtle and nuance and sensible and discretion. And what we're seeing there is that they're attributing wisdom to a complex and nuanced worldview. That we're not just believing everything we hear, but we're allowing there to be growth. We're allowing there to be a moment to stop and think and not just blurt out our opinion. Allowing there to be some friction, and that's an okay thing. And we're not always trying to abolish doubt. Because a black and white worldview sterilizes the church and keeps us from being honest with ourselves and pushes us to scapegoat others. That's a lot of words, so I'm going to read it again. A black and white worldview sterilizes the church, which means when we make the rules about the lines we're not allowed to cross, we're not allowed to show uncertainty. We're not allowed to show weakness. Everyone puts a smile on. When you're at church, it's not a time to be a human. You're here, you're here just to play your part. It keeps us from being honest with ourselves, because then, to exist in that place, we have to tell ourselves that there's not this constant dissonance between how we really feel and the way we're acting. And it pushes us to scapegoat others. It's a lot easier in a black and white worldview to say, it's their fault, their responsibility, we're here, nothing has ever been our fault. Because we're on God's team and we do everything perfectly. And we're always happy and everything is great. There's no room for humanity in that. And we even see in Jesus, he really exemplifies this idea. You know, how often in the Bible do we see people asking Jesus a question, a yes or no question about salvation or about some really difficult question, and Jesus, in his wisdom and understanding, doesn't give them the simple answer, or he just asks them a question back, or he just tells them a story, and then kind of leaves them to interpret the story. But I think the understanding there is that what's valuable about that truth is not the explanation. It's the work that it takes to really grasp onto that thing. It's bigger than the Bible verse he could have responded with. It's bigger than the, do this, and then you'll get into heaven. He knew better than to give people those types of answers because in our human nature, We'll use those to make things as easy as possible for us. I think we, we miss out on a real opportunity that we have as Christians to do the difficult work of working at belief and working towards Jesus in a way that's inclusive. You know, he was always saying, oh, okay, you guys, the religious elites, those of you who have this thing figured out, you're not as close as you think. And then looking at the, the marginalized the people who were breaking the religious rules and saying, you're a lot closer than you think. 
And I think we've so often <laughs> taken the role of those Pharisees again and said, oh, no, 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 it's about the rules. They're definitely farther away than they think. You know, he was always pulling people in, away from their understanding and away from their situation into grace, which kind of exists there. When Jesus is asked about salvation, you know, we, we hear the golden rule, asked about getting into heaven, Jesus gives this answer about loving your neighbor. You know, he says that the law and the prophets are summed up in this, which is all of the rules and all of the messages from God are all summed up in love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a big, that's like as concise as he <laughs> gets, you know. Okay, you want an easy answer? All of that stuff hangs on loving God with everything you are and loving other people. That's it. And, which of course isn't enough, and so the response is, well, who is my neighbor? Where do I get out of that? Where are the boundaries? And what's really interesting is what Jesus uses is an example of the Good Samaritan, which, in the context of Jewish culture, Samaritans were heretics. Essentially, they believed similar portions of what the Jewish people believed, but just enough. It was just different enough to be considered like, it's worse to be similar to something than to be completely different. You know, it's like a greater offense to distort. And that's how the Jewish people saw the Samaritans. And obviously in the Bible we see kind of these, um, these groups of people pitted against each other. So what Jesus does is, in a story to exemplify the principle that encompasses our entire faith, he chooses to use someone that he knows the people listening think believe the wrong thing. He uses someone that has, in their eyes, wrong and bad theology and shows them that people are more important. And he pushes that kind of the structure of that religion to say, it's all about the understanding. And he says, here's the example you should be following. Is this person because he loves people as himself? And I think what so much of this comes down to is that people are more important than belief. People are more important than belief. People are more important than your understanding. People are more important than your theology. Always, all the time. People are always more important than your understanding. You do not have the right to defend what you believe at the expense of someone else. That is not Jesus, that's not Christianity. I think it's so easy for us to forget that. Oh no, we have to defend Jesus. Just demonstrate him. The issue is not that we're losing the debate. It's that we're debating. It's good to work through those things, but what we should be doing is demonstrating the truth of God and not working so hard to explain it. 
God is asking us to be the solution, not to explain it. He's asking us to show up and do the messy work of living life with other people. Because, spoiler alert, people are difficult. We're somehow surprised by this. We step into deep relationship with people and we're somehow so thrown off by how difficult they are. They're being so difficult. They're so annoying. They're so needy. Oh, God forbid anyone require anything of us. You know, we step into these situations thinking, oh, I'm here to deliver my explanation. That's going to be great. And then your explanation doesn't work. And you're left kind of with frustration instead of expecting that to happen and knowing that your job there is not simply to explain away the truth. So, what beliefs do we use to keep us protected from the difficult realities of life with others? So I want us to think about that for a second. What we're going to take a minute to reflect on is, does my belief function as a springboard? I mean, does it motivate me to get involved? Or do I use my belief as a bunker to kind of keep me walled off, to keep me separate? So even just where you are right now, maybe let's just close our eyes and think about that for a moment. Do my beliefs function as a springboard or as a bunker? And I think that's a really great way for us to test our own belief is to ask that question. Do these beliefs, does this understanding help me love God with all I am and love other people as myself? Or does it function as a bunker? Does it, does, do I feel like it gives me the right to not get involved? want to ask difficult questions in the aim of removing anything that might be in the way to allow God to teach us how to embrace mystery and beauty to let our questions to let the difficulty of our understanding be a statement of trust We can ask difficult questions and challenge our understanding precisely because God is trustworthy, precisely because the foundation of that relationship is deeper than the way that we think. The way we think is important, but it's not more important. Let our questions be a demonstration that we serve a God who's able to stand firm in the midst of doubt. That if our motivation is really to get to him, to get to the truth, to experience a more real and true version of that life, if it helps us demonstrate a changed life, then we keep it.
when we bump up against things that show us that we're not doing that, that we're using our understanding and our belief to separate us from other people, we know we need to let God move us into growth and change. So as is the City Beautiful custom, you were given a piece of paper when you came in. And what we want to do is take a moment, think about your beliefs. Think about how you use your beliefs. And then I want to challenge you to ask a difficult question on that piece of paper. To write down a difficult question, not just as an exercise to test just because we can. It's not a choice to doubt God. It's a, it's a, it's with the intention of challenging what might be in the way. So it's from that motivation. So I want to let all of us take a moment, write down a difficult question. Like, how does prayer work? How is God actually involved in our day-to-day lives? Where are you? What's going on? Why, with all the promises do we, that we have, is life so hard sometimes? When I, I want you to write down that question as a statement of trust, that you trust him enough to really want the truest version of what he is and what he's offering to us. So we have communion in the back at that table. What I want you to do is write your question down. We're going to take some space and move into worship. And I would just encourage you to go back, take communion, and give that question as an offering. Deposit that question in one of the bowls in the back as a statement and a declaration of trust. And that's a declaration that we don't want to use our belief and understanding against people. Our belief and our understanding is for people. I'm going to pray. God, we love you. And we want the truest version of you. We want to value our understanding, but we hold it with open hands. And saying, if there are any of these things that we believe and that we hold to that are functioning as a bunker, that aren't helping us get closer to you and get closer to other people, then we ask that you would take those things away. Would you teach us to grow, to evolve? And that with every misunderstanding, we have an opportunity to press deeper and deeper into trust. And to press deeper and deeper into relationship with other people. We declare that we trust you. say amen.